Welcome to Inspiring Change from Ocali, our monthly forum of stories and connections from our ongoing work of inspiring change and promoting access for people with disabilities. I'm Simon Buer. The traumatic experiences that I had within that setting because of being misunderstood, it drives my passion because I don't want other people to feel like that and to experience that. And it was because it was unintentionally taught and even some of the kids that I work with, um, when, when there's a meltdown, she'll look at you during, right when she comes out of it and say, or he'll say, I, I saw we in my heart melts because I, I just look back and I'm like, you don't need to be sorry. It's okay. This is what I'm here for. The problem I have is with women, even though I'm a woman myself, they go through every emotion in the book in five minutes and I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> and so I avoid them, being honest. I just kind of avoid them and stay very in the professional tone and then hurry up and get back away from them. <laughs> I, I've had some really dark uh, experiences in my life from trying to manage all this and figure out, I, I sometimes question how I'm even still alive today. Um, shortly after, um, you know, all of the, I, I, the, I guess the, the public exposure and because I didn't manage the negativity well, um, I ended up, I, I nearly, nearly, I, 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 uh, I'm trying to use the uh, verbalize. Um, I tried to take my own life and I nearly lost my life to suicide. I have to shut down and shut out everything, everyone, everywhere, so I can later be here with you and with me. There's a popular phrase from Dr. Stephen Shore that you've probably heard. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Autism is unique. It's personal, individual. It can be so radically different from one person to the next that it might not even seem like the same thing, which is why it's categorized as a spectrum disorder that can manifest in a variety of symptoms, characteristics, or behaviors. Sometimes similar, sometimes not. Many people even object to the notion that autism is a quote-unquote disorder, much less a quote-unquote disability. Take Greta Thunberg, for example, who has described herself as a climate and environmental activist with Asperger's. She recently tweeted, I have Asperger's, and that means I'm sometimes a bit different from the norm. And given the right circumstances, being different is a superpower. Hashtag Aspiepower. One thing we know for sure is that autism does not discriminate. People are diagnosed across all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines, all around the world. Now, the degree to which people are diagnosed is a whole different story. For instance, when you look at the most recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, autism is four times more prevalent in boys than in girls. So, 
If you've met one girl with autism, even if that girl is Greta Thunberg, you may have only met one girl with autism. Right? Well, maybe. There's growing reason to believe that the imbalance in the CDC numbers is not entirely accurate. Many of the traditional tools used to diagnose autism are based on what ASD looks like in males rather than females. And white males at that, if we're being honest. This can mean that girls are misidentified, or identified later in life, or even not identified at all. So it's very likely that there are a lot more undiagnosed or misdiagnosed autistic girls and women than are accounted for in the CDC numbers. So, regardless of those numbers, what's it like to be a woman on the spectrum? We recently convened a panel of four autistic women of different ages from different parts of the country for a frank and open discussion about their diagnosis, their work, their personal and professional relationships, and their communities. The panel was moderated by Dr. Ruth Aspey and Dr. Barry Grossman, both of whom are licensed psychologists specializing in assessment and intervention for people with ASD. We'll introduce the panel in the order that you'll first hear them in the podcast. Sandra Williams is a national speaker on autism and trauma-related topics and is employed at the Learning Spectrum in Columbus, Ohio, where she works with kids on social and self-advocacy skills. Sandra is also a parent to four adults with autism. Chloe Rothschild is a teacher's aide at a school for children with autism in Northwest Ohio. She's also a writer and frequently speaks at conferences about autism from her perspective. Full disclosure, both Sandra and Chloe serve on the Ocali Advisory Board. The third participant you'll hear from is Lindsay Nebaker. She's a musician, photographer, and disability rights advocate, currently working in the Washington, D.C. area as a development specialist at the Autism Society. Lindsay was also featured in the 2015 documentary Autism and Love, which she talks about during the discussion. Kim Clary rounds out our panel. She's an occupational therapist from Bel Air, Florida, with unique expertise in understanding the intersection of autism, eating, and sensory processing disorders. She's also a poet. You'll get to hear some of her original work. Later in the discussion, you'll also hear from William Miller, Kim's husband. Kim and William speak frequently together, often including personal insights into their relationship and marriage. A few other things to briefly note. Kim used a balance board during the discussion. As she puts it, I talk best when moving around. So because she is standing and using a different microphone, her audio may sound a little bit different from the other panelists. You might also notice some audible clicks on occasion from a tactile device that Kim used to help regulate herself during the discussion. The discussion was recorded in front of a live audience in a packed meeting room at OcaliCon in Columbus, Ohio. We begin with Dr. Ruth Aspie. All right. Well, I'm Ruth Aspie, and I am honored to be able to be a part of this panel today. And uh, some of you are new faces, so I'm glad to, to get to meet you and learn more about you. And um, this is Barry. Yes. This uh, this is one of the highlights of my career <laughs> to have the opportunity to to be here at this panel and um, to uh, to learn more. Uh, I, re- I really really want to learn more, 
And uh, it's just a thrill for me to have this opportunity to be here. No better group to learn from. No. <laughs> so why don't we have you all introduce yourselves, and if you will tell us who you are, and then tell us how old you were when you were first diagnosed, and then we'll go from there. So you just want us to share just the age, D no story with it, just how old? R right. For, okay. for now, just tell us who you are and how old you were. Okay. Um, my name is Sandra Williams, and I was a late diagnosis um, at, in the, my ages of 30. My name's Chloe Rothschild, and the preschool first told us something wasn't right at four. We first heard the words autism around eight to nine. My name is Lindsay Nebaker, and um, I received my diagnosis of autism at age around age two and a half years old. My name is Kim Clary, and I received my diagnosis at 24. All right. So that's quite a range, isn't it? Um, we have from two and a half to 30, and I know that those are going to come with very different stories of your histories. So if we could then have you talk about um, briefly your experience with getting um, identified and were there some challenges associated with that? Um, start with me. Sure. Um, for me, I was um, misdiagnosed for many, many years um, with multiple other things, intellectual disability, um, <clears throat> mental health stuff. But when I got the diagnosis in age 30, everything made sense for the first time. And I've shared many a times in presentations that it felt like when a woman is in labor and been in labor for 30 something years and finally delivers the baby, and then it is a relief. It was a relief for me to finally make sense of what was really going on with me. Um, so the preschool told my parents around three or four that I just wasn't playing with the other kids. They thought something was up. I was at three years old. I was diagnosed with a, a, a visual impairment. And then I was diagnosed with developmental apraxia, which isn't even a real diagnosis because it's just apraxia or dyspraxia. <laughs> but a clinician around us gave that diagnosis a lot. So then we, our pediatrician said, it's autism autism somewhere so we kind of then we went to really well-known specialists and it just wasn't they were saying some characteristics but then we went back to our pediatrician he said no this isn't right mm -hmm. it's autism all right so I was born in uh, Tokyo, and I lived there throughout my entire childhood with early early childhood with my family mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so uh, I guess around, you know, when I was a toddler and so forth, my parents noticed um, just some developmental signs that just didn't seem to catch up. Like I wasn't speaking at all, and I wasn't responding to when they were trying to call my name and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to figure it out. And I think through research, they uh, found this information on autism and decided they wanted to try and see. Your parents found that information. Is that yes, right? correct. Okay. My parents found the information. And so um, what we would do in the summertime, we would go to home leave to the United States. Uh, and because my, I mean, I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen. My parents are U.S. And um, we went to UCLA 
where um, I received my formal diagnosis of autism um, from Dr. B.J. Freeman. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, all right. So yours was pretty straightforward in a, in a sense, Lindsay, it sounds like, that that, that it was the, really the first formal diagnosis that you got. Correct, yeah. Okay. And then I, I returned um, two more times during my childhood to get reassessed. Okay. Can you repeat the question? Yes, the question is to tell us about your experience of getting diagnosis and were there other diagnoses that came before the, the autism was recognized? Yes, so I was first diagnosed with ADHD at around six or seven. Um, and then I got um, conduct disorder and ODD added on to that. Um, and then it wasn't until I was in college that my OT professors took me aside and said, we think that, that you have autism. And I looked into it and I was like, yeah, this seems like it's right, but I didn't get a formal diagnosis until 24 when I went to the TEACH Center in North Carolina. Okay. okay. What led you there? Um, I was having, well, in college, I didn't see the point of getting diagnosed because I was already having accommodations for the ADHD. And then, but when I graduated and got into the workforce, um, I was having a lot of, a lot of difficulties with certain things. And then also when my eating disorder developed and I was in and out of, uh, treatments, um, I wanted to get a diagnosis so I could get accommodations although they didn't really understand it even though, even when with the diagnosis. Right, it didn't work as well as you had hoped. No. <laughs> all right, um, would you all please share, have you had situations where people have found out about autism, your autism, and question that you have it, and how they go about questioning it and how you respond to that? Um. <clears throat> Through my earlier years, there was no questions. Um, but as I progressed and gained skills and learned how to regulate myself more, there's been more questions about whether or not I was correctly diagnosed or if it is autism. And so that was really difficult for me because they would say things, well, you look good for an autistic person, or are you sure that they really diagnosed you right because you don't look autistic? And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I'm not sure if there is a true look to autism, but <laughs> <laughs> so I try to be polite, but yet almost with the same canter, if you will, with how they're asking it. Mm. And um, so or as some people will say, I would have never guessed, you know, if I'm in work, Mm -hmm. When I'm in my work mode and camouflaging a little bit, then mm -hmm. I kind of go into that mode and stay functional there. But as soon as I get in my car, everything goes off. Pushing on those ceilings and flapping and smacking the wheels and things just to get home because I held it in all day. Mm -hmm. so, and that's part of why they question it. Yeah. Because it's, they don't see the same things that you express in other situations. Yeah. But if I'm walking in the hallway and I'm stressed and I don't see anybody in the hallway, I realize that I'm flapping and doing mm -hmm. things. And then I'm thinking, oh, stop myself, you know, and try to stuff it a little bit because then I keep remembering there's cameras all over. <laughs> and I'm thinking, mm. <laughs> so I try to present myself so that I'm more credible for my job. Right. Well, when you say that when people question it, that you um, try to respond kind of in a similar way to the way they've questioned it, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, I feel like if they're, they're trying to be nice and they think that if they 
say, well, you don't look autistic, that that should be like a token of economy that, well, look, you look so great. <laughs> and, but in the same way, it's almost in a metaphorical way, like a slap in the face, because you've worked so hard to be where you are and to have it discredited all the way. I mean, I've in the past even been attacked online years back um, through, um, back then it was listservs. And some lady said, I'm sick and tired of all these adults suddenly becoming autistic and they're not. And she was more credible about because she had two sons with autism that I couldn't be that way and I'm just mentally ill and should be locked away. And those kinds of things were hurtful, you know, and it would spiral me into deep routes of depression and suicidal thoughts because I thought that was a crash in my ability to be who I was with my autonomy. And so that was hard. Sure, yeah. sure. Right. Chloe? I feel like Sandra like read my mind because a lot of what, like, I can't tell you how many times I've been somewhere and someone said, I, I would have never guessed, or you must be so high functioning. And they may, they must think it's a compliment, but it's like a slap in the face. Be especially when we're advocating for services because like, and I, I've even videoed and sent, sent it to people. I once had someone tell me, well, I'm used to working with intense individuals, placing them in restrictive environments in which I looked at my computer screen and was like, am I reading this right? It is 2000 and it was like 2015 at the time. And I'm like, we, we don't do this anymore. What are you talking about? And then I went into this whole thing in, in, about how she may not see it, da, da 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 and the response was, I've been doing this 12 years, and I'm like, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's funny, Chloe, because really and truly, sometimes the professionals know nothing, <laughs> but they act like they do. <laughs> and so I just go with the flow, and then I do like you do, give it back. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to verbalize. Uh, so, um, yes, I, you know, as far as like the questioning and so forth, I mean, um, I think my family had kind of kept, uh, had told them my schools initially. And then when I was in middle school throughout high school, I think they were trying to um, give me as a, a quote unquote normal uh, life as possible. So they would withheld that information from the school. So um, it wasn't really until like after college time when I started becoming like publicly open about being autistic. Um, and that's when a lot of the, the questions would come in. Um, so I think it initially started to be like just annoying in a sense. Um, and it gradually turned into feeling um, very upset and angry because um, that way I, I felt like um, the energy I have to put into living and existing each day and even being in this room, um, people don't realize how much energy that mm -hmm. takes for me. Um, and then it then shifts into, um, well, frustration and anger and then shame. I remember um, after um, Autism and Love had come out and um, we were dealing with the public exposure, my husband and I, and, um, you know, just I didn't even have to post anything. Like, they just see small clips of me on film. And there's on social media and the Internet, there were hundreds and hundreds of, like, nasty comments on 
she's so fake. She should be exiled from the community. She's taking advantage of the system. She's, you know, just awful things. And it led me to feeling very ashamed that I had even opened up about it. And so there's times when I, I, I still, I question, you know, opening up about my, my story and myself uh, because um, it, it makes me so upset and, and when, you know, people call me fake. Sure, sure. Um, do they sometimes do that not online but directly to you? Mm-hmm. And when that happens directly to you, Lindsay, how do you address that? Um, well, directly to me, it's usually like what Chloe and Sandra were saying. They think they're complimenting you, like saying you're so quote unquote high functioning, um, or you, it must have gone away or something. And it, <laughs> it it really, yeah, like they were saying, it's like a slap in the face. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm sort of repeating what everyone else is saying. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Okay. You've all had similar yeah. experiences. And I might add, too, that sometimes, I don't know about the other two, but my experience has been, and it, it's just being honest in the room, that sometimes it comes from parents of autistic kids. And that's painful because when your kids make gains and they become an adult and more functional, how are you going to feel when that's done to your own child? Mm-hmm. So that's some of the pain that we deal with. Mm-hmm. We're trying to advocate as hard as we can, and we get the slap from the autism community. That's very hard. Yeah. Yes. I was wondering if I can interject a real quick question. Please. Because um, I'm hearing uh, one common theme so far is that, you know, online or in person, people have... Um, kind of rejected this and, and it's made you all have some pretty dark feelings. I mean, suicidal, uh, shame, uh, frustration and anger. And But you're here and you're writing and you're talking and you're presenting. And I'm grateful for that personally. But I guess I want to know what is it, how do you shift from, uh, from having those reactions to then saying, I'm going to go and present, and I'm going to go and talk, or I'm going to write that next book, or I'm going to... Let's let Kimberly tell okay. her experience first, and then let's talk about h- how Perfect. people cope. Is that right? Yeah. Can you repeat your question? For me? <laughs> okay. Yes. The, qu- the question is, have people ever questioned the autism, and how do you handle it? What do they say, and how do you handle it? Okay, so have people questioned the autism... In the medical community, it hasn't been so much questioning it as it has been not understanding it and and really denying it or, or um, trying to find other reasons for for symptoms or behaviors. So they don't say, no, we don't think you have autism, but we think you have you know all these other disorders instead, or not instead, but just all these other disorders. Um, I think in the non-medical community, I get a lot of, um, like, you must be high functioning and and that kind of thing. And I usually respond, well, if you put me in a room that's really loud with a lot of people and make me stay there, then I won't be high functioning. And if you take away my headphones and, and if the lights are really bright, then I wouldn't be high functioning. So they're having a hard time seeing, um, some of the, the the challenges that you're dealing with. Yes. Yeah. Because it, it's it's really easy to hide them. Mm-hmm. And you, For a while. you Yeah, and you um like I regulate before and after I do things, but the people who see me, they don't see that. My husband sees it, mm-hmm. but they don't. 
Did we introduce William? No. Why don't, why don't we introduce this guy at the table? <laughs> Hi, I'm William Miller. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually, um, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm a, I'm a novelist. And uh, everywhere I go, people come up to me and they go, you're Kim Clary's husband. <laughs> and one day, somebody will recognize me as a novelist. I mean. <laughs> But um, no, to get to your to get to your question, um, yeah, we you know we see this all the time. Uh, Kim and I were out with a, a friend of mine who was a former CIA agent, and um, you know he he is trained to really study people, and he's sitting across the table from Kim saying, "You're so intelligent. You're you know you're 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 good looking. You're intelligent. You're well spoken. You know." Do people ever question this diagnosis of autism? So even he had a very hard time sort of understanding that. And I think Kim's family had a really hard time uh, understanding that. My, my sister did, yes. My, my mom knew that there was something more than the ADHD. My dad was in denial about all of it. Um, my mom, when my autism diagnosis came, she was like, yes, this makes a lot of sense. My sister, on the other hand, was like, um, you're faking it, you just do stuff for attention, that kind of thing. It made it incredibly hard for Kim, you know? So, yeah. Sure. Sure, that even your own family is thinking that you're trying to pass something off on them or trick them into thinking something or... Yeah, my yeah. sister. Okay, your sister. So, so Barry's question then to follow up was... Help me, Barry. I don't remember. Was, <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, no, uh, it, well, I'm, I'm grateful, but it sounds like you've all had some pretty challenging experiences. And in, in spite of those experiences, you're sitting here today in front of us, and we are grateful. And I guess that's what I wanted to know is how, how did you go from, how do you, what pushes you to, to continue on? And what pushes you to, to con yeah, to, to, to contribute, to contribute, and to continue in whatever it is that people are, some people are responding to, negatively. So, um, for me, it's, I know that if I put the energy in, it drains me. It really does. But I also know that if I want to see change, um, if I want to see children who are born with autism of today have a better, successful future, then it's worth it to me to do what I do even though there's days that it's not going to be so great. But here at Ocali, I feel so intertwined with the support and the, the um, true care for who I am as a person and acknowledged with that and supported with that. So that allows me to feel comfortable in those settings. I would say that it's people that I've been mentored by like everybody at this table and who have just encouraged me and really even when I've been like people tell me this people tell me that and on Facebook Messenger they've been like look this is how it is and I've just really and my parents and I have advocated like crazy for the right services and, and it's people like 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 Kelly Muller and I who work fabulously together and can in just where I'm feel understood and then my job three days a week I work with individuals with autism in at a school and 
it's my passion and I can only do that job because of how supported I am and how un understood I am. And I've presented, when I presented to, to the staff before I told them that, I was like, I want you to realize how long I hold in, in here all day and then what happens as soon as I get out, out of here. Mm -hmm. Takes a lot. Hmm. Honestly, it's really difficult for me to answer that question. Um, every time I speak up, whether it's, um, you know, giving a presentation or just, you know, sitting here at this table with all of you right now, there's still that little part of me that questions myself. Um, there's that part of me that feels really insecure um, and not sure why I'm still here today, like why I'm still speaking up and so forth. But when I think back, and I know this relates into like the camouflage, which I know we were going to get into, but um, I, I've had some really dark uh, experiences in my life from trying to manage all this and figure out, I, I sometimes question how I'm even still alive today. Um, shortly after, um, you know, all of the, I, I, the, I guess, the, the public exposure and because I didn't manage the negativity well, um, I ended up, I, I nearly, nearly, I, I, I uh, I'm trying to use the uh, verbalize. Um, I tried to take my own life and I nearly lost my life to suicide. And um, it was kind of during that time and that time when I was going through the recovery process and the healing process and getting support that that time was really a moment where I would see the true colors of people around me. So are you speaking literally in color colors. or are you speaking or you're describing their character? Oh, I'm sorry. I, yes, I'm describing their character. Okay. okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm describing their character. Um, and so it, it's during those difficult times and even other dark times in my life, I had an eating disorder too. The people that have remained, they're incredibly strong people, incredibly strong people. Um, and that includes my husband, Dave. Um, but I think it's them that have, you know, makes me be able to like sit here today. Um, and it's close people, friends like Chloe and Sandra and, you know, people that are just really just. And if I might interject that a lot of times you may feel that way, but many of us look up to you and respect you and value you as a friend and a person too, as a mentor. So we mentor each other a lot. So I just want you to know how valuable you are to us in the community as well. Thank you, Sandra. And it's, it's clear that you're, you're surrounded by strong people, but you're clearly a strong person. Thank you for saying that. Kim, we were, we were um, asking about um, your response to what it is that gives you the strength to um, be here and to, to participate in these kinds of tasks. I think that my experiences um, within the 
the mental health system. So um, with my eating disorder, I was in and out of psychiatric facilities for over 10 years. And the I, I was just so misunderstood. And I tried to make people understand by educating them about autism. I would highlight information and give it to the providers and, and <laughs> which some of them appreciated it, some of them didn't. <laughs> um, but I think I just spending so long uh, trying to make people understand and then the, the traumatic experiences that I had within that setting because of being misunderstood, it drives my passion because I don't want other people to feel like that and to experience that. Absolutely. And I do think that you all being willing to be here and talk about your experiences and some of the painful part of your experiences um, is helpful to the community and to, the, to those around you. It's helpful to the professionals who maybe have been insensitive in the past to be able to have this information and to, to go forward with better understanding. Can I can I? say something sure. with that. Um, I educate a lot of providers and it, it happens to be that some of the providers that end up at my trainings were some of the ones at the treatment centers that I had been to. Uh, and I, I get feedback from them saying, you know, thank you for, for making me understand. Um, and, you know, I wish I would have known this then. And they, they also call like I get emails from, from them as well saying, um, I just had a patient who identified as having autism and um, I was able to get them the, the right accommodations and they were succeeding. Um, and so, yes, it, it's important that we all share our struggles to um, everybody because it helps. It helps. It's making an impact. Yeah. Absolutely. That's very generous. Um, and... We have heard a little bit about this, but I wanted to kind of open the door here to, the, to discussing this. Um, we often hear that females develop strategies to fit in. Some people refer to camouflaging and masking and has so many other names as well. And we wanted to know if this is something that you, because it's a two-part question, is it something you find true for you that you've engaged or you engage in these, in masking or camouflaging these strategies? And, and if so, are there any uh, drawbacks or costs for using these strategies? Mm. For me, um, when I'm at work, it's a little more difficult because I'm more focused on the children with autism that I'm serving. So um, what's funny is that they correct me with my grammar and I'm like, okay with it. But the teachers, if they overhear it, sometimes they'll say, oh, that's kind of rude. And I'm like, no, it's not. He's being honest. And so I advocate for them and what they're saying and doing. Um, but I do remember my counselor, um, last year or so, when I first started working about three years ago, I guess, um, she said, how many of the coworkers do you know by name? And I had to think and I thought, just the boss. And I work with all these teachers. I couldn't tell you their names, but I could tell you like where their rooms were at, their faces. But if you said, oh, it's the room with so-and-so in it, one of the kids, then I knew exactly what room to go in. And then she said, well, I said, well, the plus side is I know every kid there, and, um, but I don't know the adults. And I'm not, it, the problem I have is with women, even though I'm a woman myself, they go through every emotion in the book in five minutes, and I don't know how to respond to that. 
<laughs> and so I avoid them, being honest. I just kind of avoid them and stay very in the professional tone and then hurry up and get back away from them. <laughs> and, so, and in the workplace setting, then, do you find yourself engaging in camouflaging or masking kind of strategies, to kind of pretending to fit in or to appear yeah, more? Yeah, when I'm in the classrooms around the teachers, I do. Mm -hmm. But when I'm in my room, I tell the teachers, stay out. I don't want nobody in the room when I'm working with my kids because I tell them they can flap, they can walk, they can do whatever. And the teachers are like, no, we're working on them sitting down. I said, well, I'm working on them being them. And so um, when I go into the room, I let them do their things. Yeah. And uh, only one school site was having a problem and they wanted to micromanage my group. And I said, you need to stop micromanaging. Go somewhere else and do something else. Take a break. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hated it because the kids felt like they had to sit like this and not even function. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. um, it just depends on which teacher. But I camouflaged a lot. And... Yet there was other times that I would be very strong in who I was as a person and I would mm -hmm. advocate. Like we had a sensory room where kids can go and they sometimes shut themselves in there or whatever. Yeah. Well, one of our kids was really upset and he chose to go in there. And some of the staff, when I first started working, they said, oh, you don't want to go in there. I said, I'm not afraid. And I walked right on in. And of course, the kid had a pillow and kept saying, I'm going to slice you up. And I said, I'm not afraid. I'll wait. And when he calmed down, then we started talking. And he says, why do you talk third person? And I said, well, why do you have faulty scripts? I said, if you're going to call me out on my autism, I'm going to call you out on yours. <laughs> and so he just looked at me and he said, I'm going back to class. I said, great job. That's what I wanted you to do in the first place. <laughs> so, I mean, I camouflage them where I need to, but yeah. in other areas I don't. Um, I use a lot of strategies, a lot of tools, fidgets, keeping my hands busy, um, list from in the grocery store. And Lord forbid, the grocery stores are constantly rearranging everything. And then I'm totally lost for months trying to find a certain product I used to get. But we just learn. I guess I don't know how we do it. We just kind of learn to mask it and fit in. Okay. So, yeah, I think or mask it because it can only be held in for so long. When I was in school, te teachers would say, well, you don't do it in so-and-so's classroom, so why are you doing it in my classroom? Or I would get home in my, or in my mom's car and immediately start screaming and all I could tell her was call, call Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so 43216 and they'd be gone for the day and then I would say I'm not going to school unless you reach them and um, because I could only hold, hold it in for so long and now like um, I work at a super small place so Opposite to Sandra, I think I know all the staff names, but maybe not all of the kids' names because I'm so in my one-to-one -one little world with the two I work with. <laughs> but I'll even give suggestions like, no, we, we need to allow them to, to do this. Or, but And they're very receptive to things like that. But like, I've only been using my AAC device for eight years because I was uh, so verbal and articulate that it was never even a thought that maybe it was easier for me to write until we really explored it. And it, like, it, w it was just hard to think like, do some people really know how much I really know before all of this happened? It's a good point, Chloe. A lot of people make assumptions about our yeah. intellect just simply by the way we respond or act to the world around us, and it's not true, but it hurts 
yeah. all the same. Mm -hmm. And are you saying the device is part of how you can express yourself more clearly sometimes? Yeah, and even when I was in high school, these kids would like try and pick on me and stuff, and part of me wanted to like, afterwards thinking about it, wanted to say like, really, do you want to be doing this? Because I think my grade is higher than yours. <laughs> so I, I would be careful. <laughs> Good point. Good point. I, I love your comeback, uh, Chloe. <laughs> I never told him that. I just <laughs> you were masking at that point. <laughs> um, so I, I have been pretty much masking as long as I have been aware that I was different. Um, and I camouflaging. So and when I, do you think that, w when do you think that started? What age? Um, Your awareness that you were different. So it's interesting because I was diagnosed at two and a half or so, but I, I think I started being aware I was different, maybe around uh, six years old or something. But then uh, my parents told me about my diagnosis when I was about 10. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm still camouflaging today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's real energy draining. It's an energy suck. Um, and one, the thing that I think needs, really needs to be you know, shared here, and it's what's important to mention, is that it's just like when we camouflage um, our own sorrows and anger and our trauma. Mm -hmm. We bury it, right? Um, whether it's because we don't want other people to know about that part of us, or whether we're just trying to um, bury that from our lives. But the problem is, whenever we you know, take something in, we bury something in without confronting it and without you know, being at, you know, coming to peace with it and, op and opening up about it, it's always gonna come out somehow, in some way. And so, um, because, and there, you know, a lot of my life, um, because I didn't really know and wasn't pointed out to where um, I knew I knew how to uh, bring that out in a positive way. Um, it would come out more in a negative way, in the sense of um, harming myself. So whether it was dealing with my anorexia and the eating disorders um, I've been dealing with throughout my twenties. Um, whether it had been um, when I was cutting myself in high school um, and when I had, you know, nearly lost my life to suicide in 2016. Um, you know, that was all because it was all built up, the camouflaging, right? And it just, there's a point when it just, it bursts, right? It just, it bursts. Um, so I, I think... Um, what I try to do now is, um, you know, I think acknowledging that you're camouflaging is helpful and talking about that. And then also um, what I try to do is tap into my creative side from my outlets. Um, I am a, I got a, I have a music degree in minor photography. And so I love to, I, I write music and I love to play on my 1909 Steinway that I have at our home. Wow. And uh, I take a lot of photos as well. Um, so that's kind of the way I try to channel that energy out in a positive way. Relieve some of the stress that from, from having to act all day. Is that right? Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah.
I started masking very young. Um, I, as a child, I would watch what other people were doing and I would just mimic them. So if they were smiling, I would smile. If they cried, I would cry. Or if they laughed at something, I laughed. I didn't know why I was laughing, but I just knew it was funny because they thought it was funny. And uh, it wasn't until uh, William um, took the time to help me understand the, the social cues and, and um, just understand, help me out. Yeah, social cues, you nailed it with that. Okay, uh, through TV that I understood um, why people might be looking a certain way or reacting a certain way. Um, and just like Lindsay said, with her masking, it, it led to maladaptive behaviors. Um, that's how, that's what happened with me as well. So when I was little, I would do things like, you know, flap my hands and spin and um, click my tongue and, and do a lot of those kind of things to help regulate myself. Um, but then I was told that I was, uh, that I looked retarded or that was babyish. And so then I started hiding it by doing things like pinching and scratching myself and uh, pulling out my hair and throwing up and things like that um, because those were regulating my system as well, um, but they were e more easily masked. And then I had to learn how to undo those. And ironically, when I learned to undo those, the things I returned to were the things I did as a child. I, I, I thought of something else too. I think by masking, it made me like, because I, I think I was taught to like feel guilty for it. So I thought I, I had to say sorry. And to this day, when I get overwhelmed or meltdown, I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. And it was because it, it was unintentionally taught. And even some of the kids that I work with, um, when, when there's a meltdown, she'll look at you during, right when she comes out of it and say, or he'll say, I, I saw we, and my heart melts because I, I just look back and I'm like, you don't need to be sorry, it's okay. This is what I'm here for. And when people question and when I have to mask, I think that's when we see more behaviors like self hit, hitting and stuff. And people will say, well, this didn't happen until this, this and this. And I'm like, hmm. Well, let's think why, because this has been stressful and you've been questioning. Yeah. I think it's kind of important that there's a theme that um, I see too is knowing that you're different and not being told, first of all, or not having the correct answers. What it led to was the masking, even though we didn't understand it was masking. And what it did was um, cause a lot of us females to grow up with poor self-image, self-esteem, um, not knowing how to value ourselves or value our worth with anything. And so we constantly are self-degrading, um, think we're less than, not worthy of, and all of those things impact and it comes out as, well, then it's mental health and it's not autism. Um, but through my teen years and adult years before the correct diagnosis at, um, well, 13, I started going and being locked away in mental institutional settings for long periods of time. And so what I had to imitate was those with severe mental health issues. And um, it's not that it was a direct part of me, 
but it was an indirect, but I took on the masking of what was in that environment at the time, and it was making it harder for a correct diagnosis to happen because it's so intermeshed with trauma, self-esteem, those valued issues on top of having the undiagnosed autism. As neurotypicals, we, we often fail to realize how much work goes into masking um, because I, I see Kim and she'll go and she'll give a four-hour lecture to a crowd of a hundred people and then you know people come up to me afterwards and go she's so smart she's so intelligent you know so on and so forth um, and, and they really have a hard time believing that Kim would have trouble with daily tasks like opening mail or things like that they, they can't understand that she might be able to give a four-hour speech on neurological issues and, and, and then go home and not be able to, you know, fix a meal or open mail. And, and that's something that neurotypicals just miss if, if you don't have somebody with autism in your life. What, um, this is a question I, I'm not even sure I can formulate it properly, but I'll do my best. Um, what advice would you give? Because it sounds like, um, masking and camouflaging, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. We say that there may be some benefits, but that it comes at a cost, and in many cases, a great cost. And as I think, I'm imagining that, you know, teachers and counselors and parents and, and other people are thinking, what advice, you know, how, how would I, if, what advice should I give to this person on the spectrum? Um, because the, you could imagine that in they might want to advise, well, in this setting, the, here are some things to do so you don't stand out so much or so you'll be more successful in this setting, but at the same time not realizing that those very things that they could be asking you to do are replacing adaptive uh, coping you know, measures and things you're doing with maladaptive, you know, what, what will later turn in maladaptive. I hope that question makes sense. So what advice would you give to people who are trying to, maybe they're working with someone on the spectrum, it's their son or daughter, and they, they, you know, and what should they, how should they advise their child, student, you know, client, whatever it may be. Can I jump in? Please. I, um, I would tell them to let them be themselves because if they, like for me, if I, yes, I can mask and I, I can sit down in a chair, and but I won't really be present and I won't be able to talk as fluently. And I really wouldn't be as successful doing that. And so you, you have to, um, you have to let them be who they are. And, and if they're, so when I first got my noise canceling headphones, I was embarrassed to wear them out in public and um, William helped me feel more comfortable with that. So we were at a at a bookstore and it was nighttime and it's too bright in there. So here I come, or I needed to have my sunglasses and my headphones on. And I said, William, I'm embarrassed because it's nighttime and I'm wearing sunglasses. And he's like, well, I will go in and wear sunglasses and headphones with you. <laughs> and so he did. He put on sunglasses and headphones and we went to Barnes and Nobles. And that, that meant a lot to me. I didn't feel as alone or as different um, because he was willing to, to be different with me in that moment. And so now I'm able to accept, you know, this is what I need to do for me. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, we live in a society that talks a real good game about tolerance and acceptance, but it, it's all a sham, you know? We say, oh yeah, be you, be you, but when you is rocking or fidgeting or making funny noises, then it's, eh, you know, don't be you. Um, be us, be normal. Um, for me, yes, you know, I, I, I married Kim. I didn't marry the mask. I don't want the mask, you know, do, do whatever you gotta do, you know. When we go to my parents' house or something like that and Kim says, you know, can I stand up? Can I bring my fidgets? You know, do whatever you gotta do. You know, my, my parents aren't gonna care. Um, when we're out in public, I tell her the same thing. If people don't like it, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anyone else wanna? Um, wait. Go ahead, Chloe. Add to Are that sure? one. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I'll go after you. Um, I feel like I had the same thing with the headphones and my social worker at the time said to me, what's well, like, who are they and why are you worried about what, what they think? And I, that really went deep with me and I kind of was like, well, you make a, a really good point. And we also thought about like, would you rather headphones or complete meltdown and I'm like well the headphones and they make pink headphones and my mom do doesn't know it yet but now they make headphones with cats and llamas on them <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty cool but like I guess the, the coping strategies are way better than the other the other strategies so like you could walk through our house and probably find a fidget almost anywhere in our house probably for me leaving them but like and I travel with so much stuff and sometimes people will be like you travel with so much stuff do we really have to travel with that much stuff and I'll be like yeah we do <laughs> do you want to sleep on this trip Th then we're bringing the weighted blanket <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for me I'm fortunate enough to have a job where I can work with students with autism. Yeah. And when we work with the, when I work with the girls, I'm always buffing them up, always talking to them, supporting them. And they know I wear a lot of hats because lights like that bother me. So I wear hats and I shared why I wear them. And now one little girl, um, she's older, but she's very tiny and petite and she's starting to wear her hats. And they're starting to feel comfortable with who they are as girls. And um, one particular girl at her school, um, she's masked so well that the doctors are trying to take away her diagnosis. And I'm so angry for that because then she's going to lose services and supports. And um, that, that's something I'm seeing more often of and or some of the young girls that come into our school that have similar disabilities like ADHD or whatever. And they come in and say, oh, no, I'm not diagnosed autistic. I'm ADHD. And I said, mm, I think I need to think about that a little more. Um, because they're definitely presenting autism, but they're being missed. And so they're not getting the appropriate services. So that, that upsets me. So I'm buffing them a little bit more so they don't have to mask so hard. And, and when I feel like my autism is a part of me and someone questions that, it's like they're questioning a part of who I am, like any other characteristic, I guess. What, uh, and that's actually, that's a really good segue here to the next question is, what do you think are the main differences in how autism manifests in females compared to males? For me, one of the things I notice is that women tend to be more intuitive, almost to a fault. Um, we can, 
maybe not read the face, but it's like this energy or something about them that we can overly interpret real quick. And so I think we do that, not trying to, just naturally. <clears throat> and I think the masking is more in females than the males, that we have more, we're, we're taught as women that in our society we should be social. And we're usually around mothers more as we're traveling, so we're kind of being um, intermeshed with all that socialization, so we learn to mask it and do it, but it interferes with correct diagnosis and supports. I see um, a lot of, I see more sensory difficulties in, in females um, with autism. I also, well, in general, when in, in child development, um, girls develop language quicker than boys do. And so, and this kind of goes back to the, one of the earlier questions, like with, with the, the diagnosis. Um, and I think that can make it hard sometimes to, to notice the, the female um, with autism because their language development is a little bit um, more advanced, um, not chronologically, but, but uh, in child development. Um, and also with, with females, I think that, well, William, can you help me out? Um, are you going towards special interests? No, different one. Mm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I do agree about um, sensory. We have found. That oh yeah. So I think that uh, people with, <laughs> I think that um, females with with autism also have more comorbid um, diagnoses. Um, I see a lot of. Um, ADHD diagnoses with it, which also I think can make it hard for them to get diagnosed um, because the ADHD uh, symptoms are more magnified at the younger age, more magnified than the autism symptoms. Um, and it can also mask, kind of going off topic. No, you're good. Okay. You're good. We're talking about, about um, differences between males on the spectrum and females, and you're saying that you think that maybe females have more comorbid conditions? Yes. Or maybe those conditions are recognized more in females than they are in males? Um, they're recognized instead of the autism. Yeah. yeah. Especially the social anxiety disorders often tend to be another diagnosis with the ADHD. Okay, um, there is a term that is being used a lot um, that is autistic burnout. Hmm. And um, is that a term that you use it for your own experiences and what do you mean by autistic burnout? Um, it's the first time I've ever heard it, but um, <laughs> for me, it's I live with it every day, so I can't let it burn out. I mean, it's just, it would be almost like extinguishing myself. Mm. That makes no sense to me because I'm still going to wake up tomorrow and still be autistic. Sure. So I think for me, the term I use more is the autism shutdown, when I'm overloaded and exhausted from all the energy of being used, and I really need a lot of downtime. And that's one of the things I love about my job is I get to create my hours. Mm -hmm. And my contract says up 
from one up to 30 hours so that it can accommodate my needs as I need through my employment. Not every employment's gonna do that, but I think it's more of a shutdown than a burnout. So that flexibility helps you to keep from shutting down. Yes, but I still come home and shut down sometimes. And I put the weighted blanket on and sometimes I'm so exhausted from the day that I'll just sit in a chair and usually I turn the TV straight on. But sometimes I find myself at eight o'clock and I'm all of a sudden like alert and I'm realizing that it's dark in my room and I haven't done anything, cooked supper, didn't even turn my TV on. I said, boy, I must have had a really rough day. And so that's how I gauge that, oh, I was really in a shutdown. I think like, it's kind of an abstract question, but sometimes like, I think the flexibility and stuff helps too. Like I work eight, eight, 18 hours a week, so th three days at, at the school. And But before I took that job on, I worked as a calendar editor for a paper and could work for anywhere, I could work in my pajamas, could work any hours I wanted. And there's part of me that thinks, wow, that was maybe easier to regulate and stuff. But then there's the other part of me who's like, I would not take back any moment, like even when I travel and advocate and go to boards and speak places, I'll tell my mom, I'll be like, but mom, I'm gonna miss these kids, like, because I love it. But sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll come home and my mom or my therapist take take the brunt of, of it because I'll just be so overwhelmed. But I do it because I love it. And I wish I could do it five days, but I just can't. Do you shut down or do you do something that you would call burnout? Mm, like, mom, help me out here. I'll like melt down and like, um, yeah, or become like what someone would say is bossy. Um, and I, I can perseverate like it is, is an Olympic sport. <laughs> And win a gold medal in doing so. It 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 can it it could become my hobby. That's great, Lindsay. Chloe. What about you? Um, so again, I don't really use that term, autistic burnout. I, I kind of go back when I think about that. I reflect back to what I was mentioning earlier about energy. Um, so like, I think you know, like on weekends, typically I'll end up pretty much staying at home isolated because of all the, I have to recuperate from all the energy I had, you know, soaked in from my uh, my job and, and other activities throughout the week. Um, so like, um, I think combining um, that camouflaging, that feeling need for camouflaging um, with my um, empathic tendencies. Uh, so when I um, leave a place or leave kind of a situation, I'm not only taking back my emotions, I'm feeling like I'm carrying other people's emotions with me mm -hmm. um, because I feel so compassionate towards people. And I um, love being present and listening to people when they need to feel heard and acknowledged. And that takes a lot of energy. Um, so and things like this conference, it's its amazing to have these experiences. But um, I could tell you, um, once I get back home this evening, I get on that, that plane and get back home, um, I'm going to spend this entire, that, this entire weekend um, being in the house alone um, 
and um, probably just isolating myself, maybe just getting the covers and just, you know, trying to uh, restore my energy so I can make it back to work on Monday, you know, okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that was everything I was going to mention. I'm kind of jealous because I have to go to Cleveland for a family bat mitzvah. <laughs> But this is the time that I'm grateful that O'Kelly's the week before Thanksgiving, and I only work Mondays, and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday are off. So you're all talking about needing time to recuperate Mm -hmm. after spending the energy that it takes to do some of the things you need to do. What about you in the term burnout? Um, Like the others, I didn't really ever hear that term until I looked it up. Um, I think of it more as as a a shutdown as well. And it's when there's just so much information that I've processed, either internal or external, that I just, I shut down and I can't do anything else. And I have to let myself do that or um, the, I'll be in a zombie mode is what I like to say for for weeks at, at a time. Um, can I share a poem about um, shutdown? Exhausted from the inside out, my brain is a web of confusion. Scattered pictures and missing pieces, thoughts easily turn into blanks. I can no longer keep up, I can no longer keep up, shutting down and shutting out. Everything, everyone, everywhere. A choice it is not, an option it is not. Fighting it will result in falling down further and for longer. I do not need to fight. I need to accept. Accept that it is okay to step out and away from this world. This world that is sometimes too much and too fast for me. I will come back in, but only when I am ready. Readiness is not based on expectations, but on my ability to be fully present and able to process what is around me. I have to shut down and shut out everything, everyone, everywhere, so I can later be here with you and with me. I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And you have um, other poetry that's so beautiful and so well said. I hope that people will access that so they can see some more of your thoughts. Um, oh, so I'm next again. Um, what advice would you all have for professionals who want to be helpful to women on the spectrum? That's a hard question um, because it really depends on how open the professional is going to be. Some are very closed off in what I call old school, and they've got their mindset. And so one of the things that I joke about is, who's the autistic one here? Because sometimes they can be so rigid in their mindsets that you're just wasting energy to try to change it. But when you do find a professional that is open and willing to listen, it's great to have that dialogue and to talk about the experiences of females differently. And so we, my experiences over the years of I've had to fire different mental health people because they get it wrong or they only focus on the strengths and they don't want to acknowledge that sometimes the challenges need to be discussed as well. And sometimes the other ones only want to see the brokenness or the what they call brokenness or the challenges and don't ever want to really see your strengths. So to find a good balance between those, especially those people who understand the expression of women with autism is rare. It is. Yeah. Is there something that early on 
you can see in a professional that you go, oh, this person's going to get it? When I run across those professionals, usually they're not book smart in the sense that that's all they talk about is book smart, what they learned. Um, Sometimes I get a good sensing from the energy that they are knowledgeable because it's internal for them. And when it's internal for them, then they're more open to that change. And like Lindsay, I also am a sponge, so I carry a lot of emotions. And some of the old school uh, literature about autism is that we don't feel that we don't have emotions. And some of the old schools still believe that, that there's no way I could be autistic because I'm, I have a lot of emotions and I'm very intuitive. Um, and not intuitive in the sense of reading somebody's face, but I can pick up the energy, whether it's negative or positive, and I can tell whether I'm liked by somebody right away or not. And so those things help me navigate a little bit around people. I think just having professionals be willing to step out of the box they're used to because that's not going to work. One time my mom and I were at a psychiatrist's office and uh, because my other one had retired in the, in the same office and I went to use my iPad and he pretty much had no iPads in my office and I said, I don't think you understand. This is a <laughs> communication device and he said, you're communicating just fine to me. My eyes kind of went to my mom and I'm like, and I started like freaking out and meanwhile this guy's sending us out the door with a script for another medication after you didn't even get any words of what I said and I am like crying as we're leaving there and we get in the car and I say mom mommy this is not right you're why is someone saying I can't use my words in any form I I can use my words I'm not seeing him again um we did not go back um I have like some really It's almost like a spidey sense of being able to find professionals who can really be able to help me and are really understanding. I don't know how I do it, but when I do it, it's like amazing. Like my current psychiatrist, I'll walk into her office, I'll sit on on her floor and then I'll look at her and I'll go, you sit too? And unless it's today, she forgets I'm coming and she wears a dress, she'll sit too. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a good match for you. Yeah, like people who are willing to step outside of that little box where you see me for eight to 10 minutes and then write a script and send me out the door because I'm not someone you're gonna be able to see in eight to 10 minutes and send me out the door. It's just not gonna work. And I don't want you to medicate me to the point I'm a zombie. Yeah, and could I interject something? about the devices, like when I went in crisis and when I go in crisis, sometimes my language shuts down the whole ability to speak and formulate thoughts. Um, so when I need these devices, when I'm in a locked mental health, which is a whole nother story, but when I need that, they say, we can't allow you to have that. And that, that you're there to get help and support and treatment, but they're basically putting duct tape on you so that you can't talk and communicate about what's going on. And so I think there needs to be a shift in how mental health addresses. Um, even that time that I did go in crisis, they kept wanting to put me in these classes and they forced me to do them for alcohol and drug issues and I didn't have either one. And I'm just like, what the heck is wrong with this place? You know, and that's all I could think is I wanted out of here. And so I kept trying to get out the doors and they kept pushing me back. And so those were traumatic experiences, but it was all because they wouldn't let me have a device to communicate with. Someone once told me at this place that was supposed to understand 
at this camp, they once said, you know, if you leave here early and you don't stay at our camp, you're not going to be successful in the world and you're not going to accomplish anything. And I kind of, part of me wants to send them a copy of the book I'm co-authoring <laughs> <laughs> with a little said, personal Chloe. message. You should. You should. You should totally do that. Go for it, Chloe. Autograph. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm going to answer this question in a different way because, to be quite honest, I don't really know how to answer that question. Um, so I think the reason why it's difficult for me to ask uh, to know what advice I would give to professionals or even loved ones in, um, like, just pro- who, you know, pro- when they provide services to females on the spectrum, um, I think it's because um, even you know, in a world where I feel um, like different, uh, even within the world of um, autism and even within the world of uh, autistic females, I, I can feel quite alone. Um, there were two prominent uh, events in my life which had made me sort of conclude that I was not really in place. Um, one event actually was, um, there was a, a teenage girls workshop that I had created. Um, this was about, I would say, nine years ago or so. And um, I tried to incorporate different activities of things which I had um, I had personally thought would be helping confidence, self-esteem, et cetera, because these were things that I thought personally would help me when I was growing up. Um, but it turned out that, I mean, we did it, but it turned out I received quite a bit of criticism, um, and pri- primarily with uh, from other autistics uh, people, because um, I think the idea was that like they're like, well, we don't need to do this and conform to that. Like you, you know, why should people care about like makeup, hair, stuff like that? And I think that was the first you know uh, wake up call for me in realizing that um, you know it's so different and that maybe I was alone in there. Um, the other kind of event which um, kind of was my wake-up call or I don't know was sort of my my th- my the message um, I actually gave a, a breakout presentation at Ocalicon um, 10 years ago on uh, females women on the autism spectrum and various issues there and later on after the conference I remember um, receiving the evaluations back because the presenters you know do receive the evaluations and I was going through my evaluations, um, and you know there were there were a small number of you know, evaluations that would turn in, um, and I remember that there was this option in there that had mentioned like sort of check box marking, um, like whether um, like I would recommend this presenter return to Ocali and um, you know be there present again, or there was this option of no I would not recommend that the presenter comes back. Um, Every single one of those evaluations had checked mark, not recommending I come back. And so um, that was that um, I got the message. And ever since between then and now, I, I've been asked several times, you know, Lindsay, can you give a break? Can you give a presentation on women and girls in the spectrum? We thought it'd be valuable. And I've turned down every one of them because I just I've kind of spooked out by those experiences. And so um, while there's other topics I do feel more confidence in in presenting and so forth, but that particular topic is so. And so even, I mean, 
the main reason, I mean, the only reason really I have agreed to come here today and so forth is because it's a panel. And I think that's a lot more easier with perspectives. And I'm also sitting with people who I know are, you know, I respect and, and I know are supportive. So, yeah, the, those are some hard experiences to come back from. Yeah. 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 I didn't know that happened. And one of the things that's reassuring is that evidently there must be a lot more girls on the spectrum when this room wouldn't be packed. And so there's more need for the understanding of females on the spectrum. So I'm sad that happened to you, Lindsay. Well, I think in recent years, um, I've started to, you know, connect with and bond with more um, women on the spectrum that I do feel are more uh, understanding and that, you know, do share some common things and so forth. So it's, it's reassuring. There are definitely some very incredible women on the spectrum. Yeah. And Kim's our new friend. And Kim's our new She's friend. New for us. She's incredible. Yeah, she is. What advice? What, what advice? advice would I give? Mm-hmm. Um, I would give the same. Um, I would give. Well, I'll read you what I wrote. I'd give the same same advice the same as everyone else, because they may not know that the person has autism or doesn't have autism. So they need to be open and curious and really listen, um, listen to them and not listen over them. Um, I find that openness and curiosity and, and listening are the three, um, three top traits um, of, of a really good um, provider. I have to say, um, I know we're running out of time, but I have to say that uh, I'll speak for myself, but I bet I'm speaking for a lot of people who are listening. Um, it's, it's that I feel like we're just scratching the surface here, that, uh, that there is uh, just hearing you all speak, there is so much I want to know. I wish the session were <laughs> 10 hours longer. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I really uh, appreciate and want to learn more and more and more. Thank you. You're listening to Inspiring Change from Ocali our forum of stories and connections from our ongoing work of inspiring change and promoting access for people with disabilities. I'm Simon Buer. We've been listening to a panel discussion with four women on the autism spectrum recorded live at OcaliCon in Columbus, Ohio. The panelists included Sandra Williams, Chloe Rothschild, Lindsay Nebaker, Kim Clary, and Kim's husband, William Miller. It was moderated by Drs. Ruth Aspie and Barry Grossman. One thing we wanted to clarify. Lindsay mentions a session that she delivered at the Ocali Conference back in 2009. The session was entitled, Ladies, Listen Up, The Real Deal on Women with HFA, or High Functioning Autism. Lindsay recalls receiving an overwhelmingly negative response on her session evaluations, a presenter's nightmare. But when we went back and looked at the evaluations from 2009, they were overwhelmingly positive. For example, in answer to the question, I would recommend that this presenter return to OcaliCon again next year. 
16 out of 18 responses selected strongly agree, which is the highest possible score. We're not sure what happened. Perhaps we mistakenly sent Lindsay the wrong evaluation results. Or something else transpired that left Lindsay with the impression that the session was poorly received. Whatever the reason, we wanted to let her know and emailed her the 2009 evaluation results so she could see them for herself. Lindsay got back to us right away and said this, In complete honesty, I am in a state of complete surprise to learn and review the full results of the evaluation for my 2009 presentation. I am still trying to process my emotions from learning about this, as I had become convinced for all these years that I was not good at discussing that topic and was too insecure to present on it. I'm not entirely sure what happened when I received those evaluations initially, but whatever misunderstanding had happened, I'm grateful to you for taking the time to look back at your records and for sharing the evaluations with me. It really means a lot to have this information and to know that it was all simply a miscommunication of some kind. Really, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay, for being part of this discussion and for giving so much of yourself to it. And thanks to Sandra, Chloe, and Kim for sharing with us your thoughts, feelings, and experiences. We know this took a lot out of all of you, and we really appreciate your openness, your honesty, and your energy. Thanks also to Kim's husband, William Miller, and our moderators, Dr. Ruth Aspie and Dr. Barry Grossman. We look forward to featuring more first-person accounts from self-advocates, parents, professionals, and others in future episodes of Inspiring Change. Be sure to subscribe to Inspiring Change wherever you get your podcasts. And if you or someone you know needs an accessible version of this podcast, visit ocali.org slash podcasts and click on the link to Inspiring Change. Thanks again for listening to Inspiring Change, because the need for change is everywhere, and inspiration can come from anywhere. I'm Simon Buer. See you soon. <laughs>